Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we discuss China's efforts to develop emerging technology and the Chinese Communist Party's control over new media in China with Kaiser Guo. Rarely do we have the chance to talk to someone who has experience firsthand working with one of the Chinese tech conglomerates, but that's the case with Kaiser Guo, who spent nearly six years working for the Chinese internet search giant Baidu. Kaiser is a longtime astute observer of developments in China, and he also co-hosts the popular Seneca podcast. As the United States continues to grapple with China taking a leading role in emerging technology, particularly artificial intelligence, robotics, and big data analysis, we welcome Kaiser's help in trying to unpack these issues. My colleague Jeffrey Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia policy blog, Kajit Asia, recently caught up with Kaiser. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia policy blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Our guest today is Kaiser Guo, co-host of the Seneca podcast on SubChina. Kaiser, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Jeff. Kaiser, uh, too often the conversation in this town, Washington, D.C., is relatively negative about China's technology achievements and and innovations, uh, and in some cases for legitimate reasons. But I want to turn this around a little bit. You have experience working in and observing the tech sector in China for uh, a long period of time. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what are some of the lessons U.S. and Western companies could be pulling from the experience of Chinese internet and technology companies in their efforts to innovate? You know, I I really don't think that... uh it, it, it's easy to sort of import lessons directly from China. It's such a radically different context. The role of the state is different. The competitive landscape is different. Uh, being a sort of second mover is very, very different. I think nowadays you, you're starting to hear voices. For example, Michael Moritz of Sequoia wrote in an op-ed in the Financial Times recently urging Silicon Valley entrepreneurs to emulate the Chinese work ethic. Uh, I actually co-produce a podcast called 996 with the GGV with GGV, which is a, a large VC that invests in a lot of startups in China. And uh, 996 comes from the organic work schedule that a lot of these entrepreneurs have, have developed, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Uh, and this isn't just for them. I mean, I, I, I do expect the entrepreneurs themselves to, to you know work preposterous hours, but this is what they expect. I've actually been, you know, uh, people have reached out and tried to recruit me for jobs where they've been quite explicit that it's a 996 company. Uh, I don't think that that's, that's a good idea. I don't think that it's something that America, I mean, I, I think that uh, productivity isn't just a direct function of the number of hours that you work. Uh, look, I, I, I would be really hesitant to suggest that there's really anything except for one really important thing, and this is not an easy thing to fix. That is this, that I think China derives a ton of advantage in innovation uh, because of the fact that some of its innovation ecosystems, especially Shenzhen, sits directly atop essentially the entire value chain. The, that that uh, this is where products are designed, products are manufactured, where all you know the parts themselves are manufactured. I mean, this is this is an astonishing and totally complete hardware ecosystem. And what does that allow? That allows basically frictionless uh, development. If you're somebody who's you know making drones or making advanced robotics or, or whatever it is that you're making, 
you can iterate really quickly. You can prototype really quickly. You're sitting right there. You're not not just not a phone call away, not time zones away. You're right there, sitting on top of it. You can just get on your 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 bike share bicycle and pedal down there and and have you know you work out kinks in the designs and things like that. So it's an it's an enormous advantage. And this is one that obviously can't be solved overnight. But this is something that I think Silicon Valley has kind of surrendered and. I think, to its loss. During a recent public event at CSIS, uh, we heard the chief scientist of uh, Alibaba's uh, Internet of Things business dismiss the idea that there might be ethical conundrums or potential problems uh, with collecting massive amounts of data about uh, consumers uh, and citizens. Uh, Alibaba, of course, is a giant Chinese technology conglomerate. From your experience, are, are conversations about the ethics of emerging technology, whether it's AI or machine learning or robotics, uh, big data sets, are those conversations about ethics happening in China, either privately behind closed doors or, or publicly? Uh, if so, do they follow Western parallels? Uh, if not, do you think they will ever start? So I, I think that it's unfortunate that they are not happening very often. They happen, but I think it's it, there are a handful of individuals who will routinely bring these up and talk about them, you know, with, with any kind of insight or any kind of real effort. I mean, Kaifu Lee is is maybe one example of somebody who's thought an awful lot and thought very deeply about how the nature of work will inevitably change in this age of advanced robotics and AI. Uh, but generally, there's a terribly cavalier attitude about this. And I think it's really exemplified by Mr. Ding, who we had here at CSIS. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I gave him some grief over this. I, I, I couldn't help but almost fall out of my chair when he kind of pronounced that, you know, he, he got a question from the audience and said, no, there are no problems. He, he doesn't see any downside to this. And I can't imagine that that's the official Alibaba party line. He's got talking out of school. That, that, that was It was just absurd. And um, I, I found it really disheartening, but I think it had at least the virtue of being kind of an honest response that does reflect, I think, a, a kind of callous attitude about it you know, in, in China. I think that right now there are two countries in the world who are, are really at the forefront of so many technologies that have the potential to raise enormous ethical questions. So we've just learned recently that some 86 uh, Chinese people have had their genes edited with the CRISPR technology. Uh, we've seen China take uh, a, a pretty substantial role in the development of, of driverless automobiles. We've seen uh, China, of course, you know, at the forefront of data science and, and, and artificial intelligence, and all of these things are fraught. And if they don't, we don't realize this and you know, have a conversation that, that, I mean, these are also global issues. These need to be talked through by the two principal players who are the private sector internet companies of the United States and China. I mean, uh, uh, not in the course, case, of course, of, of the gene editing thing, but that, that's also happening chiefly in, in the United States and in China. And these are the actors that need to be engaging on this. I want to shift now toward the ideology facet of the uh, technology and, and media nexus uh, for a long period of time. Uh, government censors of the party have been actively monitoring what's happening on social media over the internet uh, in, in China. Even recently, uh, even this past week, we've seen individual users uh, penalized or fined on WeChat and uh, Sinaweibo, usually for posting what are deemed to be improper materials or uh, uh, content that is promoting uh, erroneous views in the view of the party. 
Uh, from your perspective, how durable is the Chinese Communist Party's hold over new media in China? I think, you know, back in, I think it was late 99 or early 2000, uh, at the very end of his, his term, his second term, Bill Clinton came to China and he said, you can't nail the jello to the wall. I think now we have to sort of doff our hat to the advanced jello nailing technology that the Chinese have developed. It's, it, the, the apparatus is quite sophisticated. It's, uh, it's quite responsive. It is flexible enough, uh, and I think that it, it has played a really tremendous role in shaping uh, the narrative favorably for the party. And, of course, that's very, very problematic from you know, the point of view uh, of a freedom-loving American like me. Uh, but I, I think that we shouldn't sort of believe that it's an impenetrable or invulnerable. I mean, I think they, they certainly don't. I mean, they, they are... You fret over it constantly, and I think that's that's uh, reason enough for me to believe that it is not uh, invulnerable at all. It's it's it, there. There's a lot uh, that they're constantly tweaking on it. Now, I think that we don't have a very good understanding here in the general population uh, of just how it works, what it it actually is is meant to go after. We have, for example, this erroneous idea. I mean, part of it. it because we reach for this this metaphor right away that is irresistible, it's you know this great firewall metaphor, uh, and it leads us to think that the chief form of censorship is blocking of U.S. social media properties like Facebook or or YouTube or what have you, or American websites like like Google. Uh, that is not its chief purpose. That certainly is you know ancillary to. I mean, it the, it, it is chiefly aimed at domestic internet properties where most of the people are, right, where most of, of the exchanges are happening. Uh, and so this leads us to this, maybe, this to bark up, up, up the wrong tree. We, we think that if we are able somehow to end the, the, the blocking of Facebook, Google, and Twitter, that this will fundamentally change things. It won't. Uh, the other problem, though, is a whole lot more intractable, and it's a whole lot uh, more impactful for the ordinary Chinese internet user. And really, there's there's very little that we can do about that. Uh, we haven't really helped things, though. I mean, I think that, that in Beijing, they can look at the last couple of years in the United States and uh, pat themselves on the back saying, see, uh, I told you. I mean, we haven't suffered uh, these sort of decentering of the narrative attacks by uh, a foreign government like, you know, the U.S. has suffered under, under Russia. We haven't. Uh, had you know a, a huge problem with with fake news getting out there. You know, if anything, you know the narrative is is more sort of stubborn and and um, and and just completely you know it, it's a monolithic narrative, right? In China, there's there's one truth that's not necessary. It doesn't correspond to the truth, maybe, but it, it's one that they hew to really you know really strenuously, and that that's created a very different kind of epistemology in China and one that's really uh, kind of hard to dislodge. Guys, the last question will get you out of here on this one. After spending time in China, even pre-Tiananmen, and living and working there for most of the last three decades, if I have that right, what are some of the biggest contrasts with living in China to residing in North Carolina, where you and your family <laughs> live now, particularly with respect to, to technology and, and with Ordinary life, civil life as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because on, on the one hand, yeah, uh, 
internet is a whole lot faster. I mean, I have 300 gig internet in my house now, and, and it's 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 astonishing. Uh, Google Fiber is going to be rolling out pretty soon. I mean, everything on your phone works. It's phenomenal. I mean, the 4G network. I've heard a lot of people critical. I mean, of course, I live in a tech hub. Uh, I mean, Chapel Hill, where I live, is 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 you know wired up really nicely. Uh, I I mean, I I think that on balance, uh, sure, okay, we don't have this this flood of food delivery apps and you know not online everything uh, compared to China. I mean, you aren't aren't you know using it to get around as much. You aren't uh, there's you know bike sharing the way that you have in China. But I mean, I don't feel like imp- technologically impoverished in the United States. I think that there's there's a, a tendency to just for, exaggerate that for effect. Talk about you know how how woefully behind America is because it doesn't have uh, you know mobile payments everywhere. Okay, so I have to carry a little piece of plastic in my wallet and stick it into a slot when I'm going to pay for anything. But isn't is it that much more time consuming than pulling out you know your 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 QR code scanner or or pulling up your QR code to to be scanned. I don't I don't know. I think that people have kind of played up uh, the the technology gap. Uh, and then this is just I think that what this speaks to is this inability of us here in the US to 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 get a sense of perspective or proportion on 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 Chinese technology. Just yesterday it feels like we were all just you know, scoffing at, at the inability of China to innovate. And then, you know, overnight, it feels like the narrative has, has swung ridiculously in the other direction where now, you know, China's going to eat our lunch and not innovate us. I think, you know, can can we eat, do either, I mean, we have to be either uh, just dismissive or, or, or hyperventilating. I mean, isn't there some, like, sensible posture in between? So, yeah. I mean, I feel like living in the U.S. has given me a, a, a nice perspective, I hope, and going back frequently as I do, it's given me a nice perspective. When was the last time you were in Beijing? Uh, last, end of last summer, so it's been a little while, but I'll, I'm headed back soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. That's our show. Very special thanks to Kaiser Guo for taking the time to share his insights on China's technology innovation efforts and new media environment. Be sure to listen to his latest Seneca podcasts on Sup China. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemlingsari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit kajadasia.com and csis.org. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for updates on the South China Sea and Maritime Asia, and check out our latest Beyond Parallel feature on North Korean military special operations bases. Also be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on power dynamics and the two Asias with Evan Feigenbaum. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.